Well, I wanted to uh, begin this morning with a little quiz, okay? <clears throat> so this is the uh, first one to shout it out is, uh, is the winner here. Um, so we're going to do a quiz. I'm going to give you some pictures of people, and I want you to identify them for me. First up is sports figures, okay? Here we go. This one, first, it's pretty easy, all right? Tom Brady. All right, Tom Brady. How about this one? This one's a little harder. Got it, got it. All right. Next category is uh, rich people. Oprah Winfrey, we got that. And one Buffett, we got that one. All right, he is investor, business tycoon. All right, this one's still easy. Smart people. Benjamin Franklin, good. He is a, one of the founding fathers of the United States. How about this one? Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein, good. Theory of relativity equals MC squared. All right, now they're getting tougher. They're getting tougher. I just want to, like, smooth the way for you. Here we go. American money. $10 bill. Alexander Hamilton. Good job. I knew you'd get it, Brian. Uh, Ryan. Okay, here you go, Ryan. $500 bill. Not Grant? Not Roosevelt? I, th I thought, huh? FDR, not FDR. William McKinley. <laughs> Great job. He's president number what, David? 25. <laughs> Good job. Uh, it's because you have 500s in your back pocket? Is that... <laughs> All right. Here we go. Next category, actors. Again, this should be pretty easy. Morgan Freeman. Good job, David. All right. How about this one? Scarlett Johansson. Uh, the uh, world's highest paying actress, 2018 and 2019. Okay. And uh, this, again, this one's a little more difficult. American history. Not Paul Revere. Not Daniel Boone. Davy Crockett, king of the wild frontier. All right, here we go. This one, I'm not sure about this one. I, I think you'll, you'll get it. You guys knew that one already, though. Sojourner Truth. Oh, man. You would have gotten it anyway, right? All right. I'm, I'm sorry. I'll be, I'll be more careful up here. Okay. Artists are next. Uh, this might be a difficult category. Here we go. Not Bob Ross. <laughs> That's a great guess. All right, you ready for a hint? Let's try water lilies. Monet, good job. Claude Monet. Okay, here's another artist. I think you might get this one. Vincent van Gogh. If you didn't get that one, I was going to show you this one because he um, had a problem with his ear. All right. All right. Uh, next category, writers. J.K. Rowling. Right, Harry Potter series. Right. Okay, how about this one? William Shakespeare, right, known as uh, the greatest writer of the English language. All right, final category, church history, which is going to, like, lead us into my message today. That's, that's where we're going here. All right, we've got Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers. 
The, the common saying for pastors, I once knew a man named Spurgey who really detested the clergy. His sermons were fine. I used them as mine, as do the rest of the clergy, is what the, the saying was in his day. Okay, here we go. Who? Richard Wormbrand. Who said that? That's because you read Sabina's book, huh? Maybe not. All right. Richard Wormbrand. I want to talk to you about, about this man right here, Richard Wormbrand. Born in uh, 1909, died in 2001. Amazing man. Was uh, born and uh, raised as an orphan in Romania with no religious education. Um, he, he grew up, had a bitter childhood, and became bitter towards God, bitter towards all religion. He was an atheist who didn't believe in God or Christ. In fact, he hated those ideas, believing in fact, believing in God to be harmful to people. But his atheism didn't give him peace in his heart. And so this convinced atheist prayed to God like this. As he was a teen, I believe, he says, God, I, I surely know that you don't exist. But if perchance you do exist, which I contest, it's not my duty to believe in you. It's your duty to reveal yourself to me. And he has in the stars, in the creation. He has revealed himself. But that's exactly what the Lord did in revealing his word through an old carpenter uh, Wormbrand heard the words of life. This old carpenter explained the, the gospel to him, how Jesus died for our sins upon the cross, how we need to trust him for forgiveness. And the, the carpenter gave him a Bible to read these things for himself. And Wormbrand said this, he says, I could barely read the Bible that he gave to me. He said, I could only weep over it, comparing my bad life with the life of Jesus, my impurity with his righteousness, my hatred with his love. And he accepted me as one of his own. And soon after his conversion, he began training for the ministry, was trained as a, a Lutheran pastor. And uh, soon after that, 1944, when Wormbrand was in his early 30s and, and beginning to pastor a church in Romania, Soviet forces broke through into Romania, broke through the resistance and forced the Romanian king to concede control of the country to the Soviet Union. And over the next few years, the Soviet Union with the communist uh, government was seeking to pervade its influence on all things in the country. And that included with uh, all things about religion. And so there was a, a time in which the, the communists of Romania held a congress. They invited some 4,000 priests and pastors and ministers of all types to be together and uh, just speak about religion in a communist country. And these men of God appointed Joseph Stalin as their honorary president. The very one who was murdering Christians in mass. And uh, one by one, these bishops and pastors arose and declared that communism and Christianity are fundamentally the same and could coexist. One minister after another said words of praise towards communism and assured the new government of their loyalty and support on behalf of the church. And Richard Wormbrand, as he heard this, was steaming inside. And uh, so also was his wife, Sabina. When, when she saw what was happening, she was so stirred that she said to her husband, she said, Richard, stand up and wash away the shame of the face of Christ. They are spitting in his face. Richard then said, if I do so, you will lose your husband. And she replied, I don't wish to have a coward for a husband. Oh, for wives like that. Girls, oh, for wives like that. And so, Wormbrand arose, spoke to the Congress, 
praising not the murders of Christians, but praising Jesus Christ, stating that our loyalty is first and foremost to him. And uh, his stand for the truth wasn't merely for the 4,000 present. Uh, the Congress was being broadcast to the whole country, and right there on the rostrum, rostrum of the, the Communist Parliament, he proclaimed the message of Christ, that Jesus Christ is Lord, not Stalin, not the communist leaders. And Wormbrand would have to pay for that, but he said it was worthwhile. And as a result, he became a marked man, and the, and the government surveilled him and watched him. Watched him minister to his own congregation and, and, and tried to follow him as he ministered to the underground church. But the day finally came, February 29th, Leap Day, 1948, when he was kidnapped by the secret police on the way to church. Two years after, his, his wife was also imprisoned. And their nine-year-old son, Mahai, was left alone and homeless. And this happy family was broken up. His dad was in prison and uh, his wife was in prison. Wormbrand would end up spending 14 years in prison for preaching the gospel. And during those years, tortured physically. He was uh, suffered psychologically, spending three of those years in solitary confinement. Further, there's emotional distress. He was not told where his wife or his son were, where they're alive, where they were, how they were. So there's the torment of his family. Also endured mental torment, facing years of brainwashing. He said 17 hours a day. He and his fellow prisoners would hear over the speakers, communism is good, communism is good, communism is good, Christianity is stupid, Christianity is stupid, Christianity is stupid. Give up, give up, give up. It was all enough to break a man, but Wormbrand stood strong and his faith kept him. And his wife, as she spent some years in prison, she was taken from her son. She experienced great hardship as well, yet she stood firm. And uh, by God's grace, they were finally released. In 1965, they were released and enabled to, to leave Romania. And he didn't really want to, but knew that for his life, he must. And so he came to America, eventually, and, and um, founded the Voice of the Martyrs, whose mission is to defend the human rights of persecuted Christians. The Voice of the Martyrs still continues on today. I know the Weebies, you guys pray through their calendar often. Right, Jack? You pray for Voice of the Martyrs calendar for other countries? Yes, he does. He does. Just trust me, he does. And um, as a result, they, they wrote several books. Quickly coming back, uh, Wormbrand wrote this book, Tortured for Christ, in which he tells of uh, some of the deals that he, he endured in prison and had as great perspective on what suffering is. And uh, his wife wrote a book called The Pastor's Wife, which I alluded to earlier with uh, uh, Maggie. Um, this really... Uh, the pastor's wife is a bad name for this because you'd think it's only for women, but basically it just tells a, a woman's perspective of the suffering that she went through and her husband went through in the midst of trials. And so I, I wish it was a better, a different title, you know, uh, suffering as a pastor's wife, maybe, or something like that. But they're worthy to be read. And I bring this up this morning because this is this is kind of a taste of what the uh, apostles faced, what they were all facing we're going to see that a little bit in Acts chapter 5. You can turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. We're going to see the, the apostles this morning be arrested, placed in prison. Soon afterwards, they'll stand trial and even be beaten for the name of Jesus. But it doesn't stop them. If you look at the very last verse of Acts chapter 5, we, see, we read this. And every day in the temple and from house to house... 
They did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. It's where we're going in Acts chapter 5. It's where we're going to end. Uh, today, though, um, we're going to just look at four verses. I thought about preaching the whole thing, but these four verses are so rich that I decided to, to slow down. I knew Andy also wanted to give him time to talk. And, and um, so we're going to look at the four verses. Acts chapter 5, uh, verses 17 through 21 is our text. The context here is the church doing well. There's great unity in the church, great love for the church, people selling things to give them to other people to support them. And even when there was in the church those who were greedy and deceitful, and lying and sinful, the apostles dealt with the sin, and the Lord continued to bless the church. He answered their prayer for boldness in chapter 4 and verse 31, because they spoke out boldly. He, he answered their prayer for healing, Acts chapter 4 and verse 30, as they, they stretched out their hand and they healed many people. We read about that last week in the section chapter um, 5, verses 12 through 17. And we read chapter 5 and verse 14 just shows how well the church is doing. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. You just see the church abounding, just growing. And uh, the Sadducees took notes. Verse 17. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him. That is the party of the Sadducees and filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go out and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. My message this morning is entitled, Speak the Words of Life, because that's really the call of this section of Scripture upon us. That, that's exactly what the angel of the Lord commands his apostle to do in verse 20. If you look there in verse 20, he says, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Now, interesting, the circumstances surrounding these words are, are a bit interesting. The apostles weren't merely going out minding their own business um, as perhaps Mary was when the angel Gabriel visited her to tell her that she was going to have a child. Uh, from best we can tell, maybe she was out working in the field or, or maybe inside of the kitchen or doing some laundry or maybe she was out for a walk or something and she's just going about life and then this angel appears to her and speaks to her. But not so these circumstances with the apostles. The angel first brings them on an adventure before he tells them to speak the, the words of life. Here's the adventure, verse 17 and 18. The high priest rose up and all who were with him. That's the party of the Sadducees. And filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. Here's my first point simply is the arrest. They were arrested. The Sadducees rose up and arrested them, put them in, in jail. And this isn't the first time that the apostles were arrested. Back in chapter 4, they were arrested. In fact, they are arrested by the same people for the same reason. They were arrested by the same people, the, the Sadducees. That is the people in power, the, the religious elite, if you will. In, in the days of Jesus and the apostles, there were two, two people. There were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were the strict conservatives. The Sadducees were the liberals. The Pharisees believed in all of the law of the Old Testament. The Sadducees just believed in the, old, the five books of the Bible, uh, the Pentateuch. Um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And they, they didn't believe also in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. Isn't it interesting here that the angel is the very one that relieves them, it allows them to escape from the prison cell. But anyway, these Sadducees were in power, not happy, 
because they're in danger of losing their power. It's all these people, this multitude of people. Chapter 5 and verse 14. More than ever, these multitudes were coming. They were, they were envious. They were filled with jealousy, as verse 17 says. As many people were believing in the Messiah at the, at the hearing of this message from these apostles, these preachers. And they were jealous that the apostles were, were getting a bigger following than they would. And they were lo- worried about losing their power. And so they arrested them and brought them in. It's interesting, in Acts chapter 4, it was Peter and John who were put in prison and brought before them. But here in verse 18, we see that it says that the apostles were arrested and put in public prison. Now, we don't know if it's all 12 of them, whether it's Peter, Andrew, James, and John, whether it's Matthew and Bartholomew. We don't know if it's all 12 of them, but it seems to be more than Peter and John. And I would suspect the Sadducees are this. Well, we, we captured two of them before and hold two of them on trial, and, and this didn't work so well. Let's, let's grab more of these leaders of leaders. Let, maybe, maybe we get more of them in trouble. Maybe we have more of them stand before us. They'll stop these men from preaching. So let's bring them all into custody. And they were supposed to spend the night in public prison, but their sentence was commuted by an angel. So my next point is the escape. The escape comes in verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. Now, this escape from prison was unlike any prison break that had ever occurred. Um, the apostles weren't in the public prison just looking for weaknesses in security. Uh, they weren't thinking about digging a, a tunnel underneath the wall to get out. Or like Alcatraz, right? They, they, these guys weren't thinking about, oh, let, let's sew these things so that we can uh, like have this, the mask so that it looks like we're asleep and we'll get out on this raft that we've made and try to sail across the bay to, to San Francisco. It wasn't all this. Kind of, they, they, were, they were probably sleeping, in fact, uh, because it was at night. It says in verse 19, during the night is when the angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. It's a miraculous release from prison. And uh, we'll read more of this detail later, but more of the detail, uh, verse 21 and following, we're going to find out that even the guards of the prison had no idea that any of these prisoners had escaped. I mean, for all they knew, everyone was inside. They, they knew not of this jailbreak. They were probably sleeping. Further, there's no evidence of foul play. There's no holes in the wall. Um, there's no prison guards hurt. There's no signs of violence or struggle in any way. In fact, we'll find out that when the angel led them out, he closed the door behind him. He locked it from the inside, if you will. How miraculous it is. And in verse 20, then, the core of our text, we read what the angel told them to do. I'm calling this the command. This is basically what, what they're called to do. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Isn't it interesting what the angel didn't tell them? They had a jailbreak and they didn't say, oh, you're free, so make a run for it. He didn't say that. He didn't say, go hide yourself. No, instead he told the apostles to do the very same thing that brought them into the prison in the first place. As one commentator said, God frees them physically in order to free others spiritually. This commentary is really picking up on the angel's description, the message they're preaching, right? Free them spiritually, right? Give them life, if you will. They were to preach the words of life. They're to preach life-giving words. And that's where I get the title of my message this morning, speak the words of life. And that really is our great application here this morning, is that we ought to go out... So we ought to be speaking to people words of life, words that will give life, 
Now, after all, isn't that the main application of the book of Acts? I mean, we see this slide up here, week in, week out, be my witnesses, over and over and again. And, and I love this picture, right? It's got the empty tomb in the front, the time of the apostles. And as you go into the countryside, you get, you get more people and villages. And eventually you get to where we are with skyscrapers and everything. That's like, takes you all the way through the history of everything that's going on through the world to the ends of the earth. In fact, Acts 1.8 is where we get that. You will receive power and the Holy Spirit's come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And even us today, even to the remotest parts of the earth, even on beyond to where we are. And that is the apostles, what Jesus told them, that they would give witness to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And they saw him dying. They saw him being crucified. They saw him buried. And they saw him raised again. They spent 40 days with him. And so as they received these words of being witnesses, they were talking about the risen Christ, the very one that says, be my witnesses, the very one who's risen from the dead. I'm telling you to be my witness. And he says, you go and flood the world with a message that I am alive and well, right? This message of life, right? This message of risen from the dead, the message of hope. And that's what the apostles are doing in Acts chapter two, the day of Pentecost. Peter preaches of Jesus Christ, crucified, dead, buried, risen, and now exalted. Peter preached this to the crowds after the lame man was healed. Christ crucified, buried, risen, exalted. And in fact, we're going to see next week, if we get there, Lord willing, in chapter thir- in verse 30, same thing. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Those are words of life. Talking about Christ dead, but but raised up and exalted and forgiveness of sins being offered. And we're witnesses of that. And that's what we are called to do here. We're called to be my witnesses. The angel calls this message the words of life. We sang today the the wonderful words of life. Sing them over again to me. Wonderful words of life. Let me more of their beauty see. Wonderful worlds of life. Words of life and beauty. Teach me faith and duty. Beautiful words. Wonderful words. Wonderful words of life. And what are the wonderful words of life? Jesus came. He lived perfectly for us. He was, he was killed and crucified in awful death because the wrath of God was upon him. Buried, risen again so that we as we believe in him, we too can rise again. Those are words of life. Sweetly echoes the gospel call. Wonderful words of life. Offer pardon and peace to all. Wonderful worlds of life. Jesus, only Savior, sanctify forever. Beautiful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of life. And that's what we need to do. We need to believe and teach and speak out these wonderful words. That's that's what the gospel is. It's It's a message of a living Savior who came and gives life to those who repent and believe in his name for the forgiveness of their sins. And so really the question is, are you doing that? Are we doing that? Are we speaking words of life into others? Are you taking up gospel opportunities? Are you telling others of Jesus? Are you talking to your co-workers about Jesus? Are you telling your wayward children about Jesus? Are you telling your friends about the life-giving message of Jesus? A few weeks ago, I told you the man I was playing pool with is a, a friend of mine. I've known him for a little bit. And he's going through some incredibly difficult times. 
And uh, we've been trying to figure out a time to talk with each other about about all these, these the difficulties going through. We've been texting back and forth, and we tried like three times to get together this week, and it didn't work. But but when we do, my aim is to give him life giving words to help to help to help understand that Christ is the one who's crucified. You believe in him and trust in him. You have hope of the life after death. It's my heart to speak wonderful words of life to my friends. And as you, you look around, uh, it just really struck in prayer meeting that someone prayed that we are in the vast minority here in our world, right where we are. Like you just go around like the vast majority of people around you. Well, maybe not if you're homeschooled, okay? And then just your, or maybe not if you're in the Christian culture. But but just get out, go to Walmart, right? Go go to some place where people are allowed to gather now, and there are just scores of people who need life, who are dying in their sins. And the apostles speak that in verse 21. Look, I'm just calling this the obedience. Verse 21. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to preach. They followed the command. Go and stand in the temple and speak to all the people, all the words of this life. They went to the place that the angel told them. He said, go to the temple. And they did exactly what the angel told them to do, speak to the people. And they did it right when the angel told them to do it. They did it right away. If you look here, it says they were in the temple at daybreak. And just what a great picture this is of obedience. And uh, and I'm sure these apostles, as they thought about what the angel told them, I mean, we can be so distant, we don't even think about this. The angel told them to go and speak forth those wonderful words of life. And they're like, but that's what got us here in the first place. And I'm sure there was every pull for them to say, I don't want to do that. No, not me. I, I don't want to go there. I don't want to face this again. I didn't like the night in the jail. I didn't like waking up early. I, I, I would not want to do this. They're preaching the people about Jesus that brought them there in the first place. But they went out and they continued to do the same thing. And so don't, don't miss that. Uh, again, I, I return to the story of Richard Wormbrand. He was imprisoned in uh, 1948 and was tortured in prison. Now, he was there 14 years, but he got out. He got out just briefly. And, and here's what he said. I, I want to I read from his book, just to encourage you with this book. He says this, the year 1956 arrived. I'd been in prison for eight and a half years. I'd lost much weight. And so he probably looked a little bit more like that when he got out. Gained ugly scars, been brutally beaten and kicked, derided, starved, pressured, questioned ad nauseum, threatened and neglected. None of this had produced the results my captors were seeking. So in discouragement and amid protests over my imprisonment, they turned me loose. I was allowed to return to my old position as a pastor for just one week because he preached two sermons and they called me in and told me I could not preach anymore nor engage in any further religious activity. So that was the end of my public ministry. Richard Wormbrand, when he got out, did the same things the apostles did, right? They went out and he just spoke to the people. The apostles were preaching in the temple when they were arrested and they were brought to... He said, go right back where you were. And he was pastoring this church and he went right back to his church and he spoke to them. And then he, he continued on. Just I, I want to give you a perspective. This Probably the authorities believed that I'd be afraid to defy them and continue with underground witnessing. That was where they were wrong. Secretly, and with my family's support, I returned to the work that I had been doing before. Again, I witnessed to hidden groups of the faithful coming and going like a ghost under the protection of those who could be trusted. This time I had scars to corroborate my message about the evil of the atheist 
viewpoint and to encourage faltering souls to trust God and to be brave. I directed a secret network of evangelists who helped each other spread the gospel under providentially blinded communist eyes. After all, if a man can be so blind as to not see the hand of God at work, perhaps he will not see that of an evangelist either. What a great perspective. God's blind to God. When people are blind to God, they'll be blind to his work as well. Eventually, the ceaseless interest of the police in my activities and whereabouts paid off for them. Again, I was discovered and imprisoned. And for some reason, they did not imprison my family this time, perhaps because of all the publicity I had received. I had had eight and a half years of prison and then a couple years of relative freedom. And now I was to be in prison for five and a half more years. My second imprisonment was in many ways worse than the first. I knew well what to expect. My physical condition became bad almost immediately. But we continued the work of the underground church where we could in communist prisons. So even in prison, you couldn't stop Richard Wormbrand. He was going to continue to preach and speak and use his prison now as his church, as as a place where he was going to go. And that's that's the picture here you get of the apostles. They're going to speak until they die. And there are examples of that um, throughout church history. One one thing you even see is, um, is John Bunyan, his testimony as well. Right, the testimony of the apostles in chapter 4 was that they cannot help but speak what they have th- seen and heard. The apostles obeyed because they could not help it. This wasn't a grudging obedience when they went. It's like, like they couldn't help it. Like that's the thing that they had to do. They saw Jesus risen from the dead. They felt compelled to tell others. And a little warning from the authorities wasn't going to stop them. And with John Bunyan, it's the same. He's the author of Pilgrim's Progress. He could not help to speak. Under threats of persecution, Bunyan did what he was called to do. He continued to boldly preach the word of God to his people in Bedford. And on November 12th, 1660, as Bunyan was praying, he was abruptly interrupted by the local magistrates and arrested. He was given an ultimatum. You you keep on preaching and you'll go to jail. (laughs) Bunyan replied that he firmly believed in his calling to preach the gospel and to call people to forsake their sins. And close in with Christ, lest they miserably perish, were his words. And so in refusing to stop, he spent 12 years in jail. He could have gone free. All he needed to do was stop preaching, and he would be out. But he couldn't stop. I cannot, I cannot stop seeing what I've seen and heard. I cannot but speaking what I've seen and heard. He could never do this. You know, in this way, I think a great illustration, he's, he's like a dog. This is, this is our dog, Autumn. And um, she's a little fluff ball of a dog. I, I took a picture of her this week and sent it to our family text. And uh, she's looking pretty shabby. Needs to go to the groomer right now. And as I sent this picture out, SR sent back this picture just to kind of say, hey, this is, this is what's going on with Autumn, I think. Anyway, um, Autumn loves to sit on a chair in a front living room and look outside. And she, she just loves to kind of put her hands there on the upper end of the, the chair. And she's looking outside, just, just, just watching how things are going. And the instant she spots a squirrel or a rabbit or someone walking, especially if they're walking with a dog, she cannot help herself, but she is barking. And, and I don't care what we're doing. She is just barking and she is going at it. And, and the only way to keep her there is just maybe to remove her from the situation Right, remove her into another room, pick her up, or, or I, I try closing the curtain so she can't see anymore. And she's trying to get behind the curtains, and finally, 
finally she gives up. But that's the only thing that you can you can stop her is the only is removing her from the situation. If she sees something, she's going to she's going to bark. And and I've often thought about how that's a picture of self-control of of the one who has a lack of self-control. And um, in some regard, it is. But on another regard, it's like a perfect picture of what the apostles did here. It's It's the perfect picture we're called to do. You cannot stop us from speaking. You cannot stop autumn from barking. And that's what the apostles did. They, they said they're opening their mouths and speaking the words of life. And, and John Bunyan as well, right? As he had opportunity, he was going to preach to others about Jesus. And so governmental officials in England right, tried to keep him away from the people. And they kept him in jail. And, the, and, and they, there was the hope they're going to stop him from barking. And it might stop him from barking to the people in Bedford, but he's going to speak to the people in his jail cell. In fact, I even heard that when he was in his jail cell, people would come and so he could speak through the window to hear them. To, to hear him preach. He wouldn't stop. And reasoning with Bunyan was like reasoning with Autumn. He'd say, Autumn, will you please stop barking at the squirrel? You think it's going to help? No, it's because her intelligence is, is pretty minimal. She doesn't understand a thing you're saying. But, so likewise with Bunyan. He said, John Bunyan, would you, would you please stop preaching these people? You have a, as good a chance of persuading him to stop preaching as you do really pleading autumn that she would stop barking and, and even and, and this is this is i think shows how great it is even the difficulty of his family um escalated things listen to how he describes his hardships he's in jail he says the parting with my wife and my poor children hath often to me been in this place as the pulling of flesh from my bones Also because I should often be brought to mind the many hardships, miseries, and wants that my poor family was like to meet with. Should I be taken from them, especially my poor blind child Mary, who lay nearer to my heart than all I had besides. Oh, the thoughts of the hardships I thought my blind one would go under would break my heart to pieces. So here he's, he's in prison. It's one thing to just stoically say, here, here I am. I, okay, I'll just I'll suffer. But he's got this family out there, and this family is like pulling at him. And he's like, oh, it's like ripping flesh from my bones. So he's struggling inside. And yet, what Jesus said held true for him. Luke, 12, Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And Bunyan demonstrated that. Not that he hated his family. No, his family is very dear to him. And Jesus isn't telling us to, to hate our family, right? In the sense of, of just, oh, let, let have God get them. But, but he's saying like John Bunyan, right? If you have a choice between your family and refusing to uh, stop preaching about Jesus, or stop preaching about Jesus and your family, you, you need to hate your family and your wife and your kids. So I say, I got I to gotta preach about Jesus. This is what I have to do. Because his love for Christ was so much that it looked like he even hated his wife and children. Though he didn't, his heart was burned up in there. Bunyan wrote a poem in prison to describe his situation well. He says, I am indeed in prison now in body, but my mind is free to study Christ and how unto me he is kind. For though men keep my outer man within their locks and bars, yet by the faith of Christ I can mount Higher than the stars. Their fetters cannot spirit tame nor tie up God for me. My faith and hope they cannot lame. Above them I shall be. 
Just even right there, he says, even the prison is not a confinement for me because my love to Christ is great. If I get out, I'm going to preach Christ. And so, church family, I just exhort you to the title of our message this morning is Speak the Words of Life. Be like Richard Wormbrand, who just can't stop speaking. Be like John Bunyan, who can't stop speaking. And be like the apostles, who said, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And maybe if we act like that, maybe we'll sense some of the experiences of the revival of the early church. So let's pray. Oh God, we cannot do this on our own. Uh, I know clearly, God, it is it is you, oh God, who needs to stir that within our heart. Um, Richard Wormbrand is not his own strength that did it, nor John Bunyan, nor the apostles. Even in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, I labored more than all, and yet not I, but the grace of God that was within me. And so we pray, oh God, for the grace, God, to stand up for you and to speak the, the words of life. God, there's, there's a world around us that's dying, and I pray that you would give us a, an, an urgency and a zeal and a passion, God, to share with them words of life. And, and God, I would pray that you would open hearts. I think one of the biggest discouragements that I have known over the years is the number of people I've spoken words of life to who have smiled or politely rejected it or antagonistically have rejected it. But God, I, I pray you'd encourage us with people who come and who believe in Christ, God, to help us encourage to, to speak more. God, to realize that your message of life is here to be had by people who would repent of their sins and know what it is to really live. So strengthen us in these things, we pray. Amen.